1: So yesterday, uh, by way of preparing for this show, I was uh, watching this woman on television, but I also had to listen to President Obama giving a press conference at the same time. Uh, And so I found myself listening to President Obama talk about Iran getting uh, a nuclear warhead while I was watching her pet a kitten. Uh, and it was sort of kind of a nice combination, sort of like I was a little scared, but I was a little soothed, too. It was sort of a, a nice feeling. Uh, and in some ways, roiling emotions, uh, good emotions and bad emotions, are very appropriate for uh, Kara Sundlin, at least on this particular occasion. She's here to talk about her book, Finding Dad, From Love Child to Daughter. Uh, Kara Sundlin, of course, is in WFSB. Uh, she's uh, the wife of Dennis House, who's also been on this show. Uh, and she's many other things besides. And as we go along here today, we have plenty of time to find out what all those things are. But first of all, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Colin. It's great to be here.
1: I think I met you right after you arrived. In, what, what year was it that you arrived in this I
0: came moment? in 2000. You were my first radio interview ever. <laughs> I remember being nervous, and I was on uh, with you back in the day because I had just come back from Bosnia mm-hmm. covering our troops going over there after
1: 9-11. Well, um, we'll sort of circle back to that and sort of how you wound up in the career that you're in. But I, I will say that uh, meeting you that day, I would not have guessed that you had had the life that you 'd had so far, and that you 'd had in some ways the rather unsettling childhood that you you 've had I mean I suppose when you read about it in a book, it always maybe seems more harrowing and traumatic than, than it does as you 're living it a little bit more slowly over the fullness of time but But you grew up under very unusual circumstances and i 'm going to let you kind of begin this story but but basically, you grew up knowing that your father, your biological father, was somewhere else and and had no plans to be in touch with you.
0: Right. My mom uh, raised me alone, except for the period of time that she was married. And so there was a father figure in my life, but we never really connected. So I considered myself, uh, especially when there was only a few years in there. So it was uh, basically I grew up with just my mom, but she was always honest with me. And she said, your biological father is a man named Bruce Sundlin. And... It was not until I got older that I understood that they had met in the '70s. My father was a World War II bomber pilot who came back and was running one of America's uh, biggest aviation companies, executive jet. My mom was working for him as her chief flight, as the chief flight attendant. They dated on and off for five years, and then when she got pregnant with me, he chose not to take responsibility, and there was nothing but turbulence ahead, and there was no DNA testing back then. So mm. she ultimately you know, tried to um, go to court and all that and ended up settling out of court, taking um, $35,000 for my life and promising I'm not going to contact you again. And that but, but I didn't know all the f- fullness of that until later on, but mm. she did tell me, I think she knew I was always going to want to know someday, your biological father is a man named Bruce Sunland, so I knew his name, which, as you know from reading the book, helped me when I was 13 years old because I woke up in the middle of the night... Mm-hmm. And as CNN was announcing election returns, and they announced that Bruce Sundlin is running for governor in Rhode Island and almost won. This was the 88 campaign, mm-hmm. so he didn't win that time. But I woke my mom up and said, Mom, Mom, is that him? Look at the TV. And that was my first time ever seeing a picture of my father.
1: So much of this story does um, unfold before the spotlights of the news media, either it begins with you watching uh, first uh, and when you're 13 and then again when you're 15 on television, and then more of it unfolds at press conferences and media events and things like that. And in some ways, it's small wonder that you wound up in the occupation that you're in. But we'll, come, we'll also come to that, too. I just, But I first want to say, it, it, uh, when you read about somebody's childhood... And, and it has some cruel bounces to it. I mean, you uh, moved around a lot. Your mother married a man who seems to have been a pretty severe alcoholic. You had to bear some of the burdens of that. Uh, there were other disruptions. You wound up with your uh, with your aunt, expecting, your aunt and uncle expecting your mother to come. She meets some other guy that she thinks she's going to get engaged to. There's a lot of chaos, yeah. a lot of switching of schools, four schools in three years at one point, having to be the new girl all the time, uh, having to have a story on hand about exactly what the story of your parentage was, it, it, I found it rather heartbreaking to read about. I, but it's not always heartbreaking to live something that's heartbreaking to read about. Did you Did you think I'm having a hard childhood?
0: I don't know if I thought I was having a hard childhood, but I was certainly aware that I, I, normal was a word I thought about a lot. Like my ki- my best friends, Brooke and Dana, had two parent homes, and their moms actually both stayed home and their dads went to work. And I remember like envying that, like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And I grew up kind of... Uh, quickly because I had a lot of responsibility, as I think most kids of single parents do, but especially when you're the only kid. And my mom was, you know, I was fortunate. She was a a, a great mom and loved me and did all that. But it's very hard to manage everything on your own. And And she had her own emotional upsets to deal with. And when you're the only kid and there's no other adult around and finances can be shaky and things like that, even when a parent is doing their best, I certainly felt that upheaval. And I talk about that. Um, in the first couple chapters of the book because I think it was important to understand that's probably why as I grew older I couldn't deny the need anymore that I really needed to find my father and in part because I had had so much disconnection and instability and what does a father provide? It provides protection. I mean, Sigmund Freud, as I was researching the book, said there's no, you can't think of any need greater in childhood than the protection of a father and that primal need I think is what drove me to go to the lengths I did to find my dad
1: talk about those lengths in a second but before you decided to go to those lengths before you saw him on television when you were 13 and then again when you were 15 um did you think of him as kind of the end of the rainbow in a way that you know if i could get to him if we could uh, patch things up uh, life would be pretty much all better
0: yes i yeah. think i had that fairy tale utopian idea like oh look once he sees me it'll be great and we'll just you know have ice cream together and i'll forget everything that he didn't want me in his life in the beginning, and we'll just move on. He probably just wonders, you know, I, I just need to reach out. And, of course, it, it wasn't that easy.
1: So you saw him on television when you were 13, when he narrowly lost a race in Rhode Island. Uh, you were in Michigan at that point? Yes, or you I were grew up in the Detroit area. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and then two years later, you see him on CNN. This time, he's won. And and it's sort of around then, I think, that you start thinking, I'm, I'm going to sit right down and write this man a letter.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I... And I <laughs> My own beliefs that everything happens for a reason are in part because of my own story, because I couldn't deny that, oh my gosh, I didn't do anything with that information. I knew that he was out there. This is pre Google. But then I happened to walk by a different TV again. Two years later, I'm 15. At the very second, someone's mm-hmm. announcing the election returns, and I see that he's won. And I thought, well, I now know. I have no excuse. I now know where he is. I could write a letter to the State House, which is what I did. I sat down with my best friend Dana, and we wrote a little letter to the State House. Um, I marked it personal and sent it off to him and hoped that I was going to get a return letter mm-hmm. and did not get a return letter. And so that was my first attempt of like, OK, if I just now I now I'm going to send him a letter. It was almost like a resume I wrote about myself that I wanted to get to know him. And then I put I'm five foot three and I, I went on the National Honor Society. and I'm good at debate. And I hear you're a lawyer. And I was like I, it was almost like I was marketing myself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, as, as it turns out throughout this story, the fact that you're five foot three and he's very tall, <laughs> yeah. was just like a constant source of, of at least conversation between the two of you. But the conversations didn't start for a long time, and and this letter was uh, ignored, uh, and, and a lot of other um, overtures were essentially right. either rebuffed or ignored.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, t- to sum it up, I ended up finally, my mom said, you know, listen, if you want to find your father. I always thought this might happen. I'll help you find an attorney. So we did that. A more forceful letter writing campaign began, you know, really urging a meeting, a blood test, something. Those letters were pretty much rebuffed also. And it was ultimately a second attorney, Henry Baskin in Michigan. And it was six weeks before I was turning 18 about. And he said to me, um, you know, he said to me, if you don't file a paternity suit, you're gonna lose all any legal standing. I know you want a relationship with this guy, but mm. if you if you truly believe he owes something for your life or help pay for your education, you're gonna to have to file something and it will become a public story. Now, if I back up a little bit, I skipped a step in that what happened in between that was I did get that secret meeting. Mm-hmm. I ended up cold calling the State House. I and and his executive assistant took my call. I was surprised to know she knew all about me. Mm-hmm. And we ended up I think from that personal phone call, they were thinking, okay, we better do something. And uh, I ended up getting a secret meeting with him. I met him for the first time in my life. And that to me was like the fork in the road of my life, even though we. There's didn't- something
1: very heartbreaking about that meeting, though. I yeah. mean, he's got a football game on television, yeah. and he never really fully takes his eyes off it, it seems. Mm. He's not really engaging with you as a real person. He's talking to you as if he's meeting some young, lovely young lady who might have some possible connection to him. But he, it isn't really Warm looking— Or yeah. even looking at you for real, like, this is—I really need to see who this person is, and mm-hmm. I really need to acknowledge mentally uh, and emotionally who this person is. Uh, right, the way that you describe it, it doesn't seem like that at all.
0: No, and I think a lot of people thought—certainly uh, that meeting was later written about, and, and it came off very cold. On an inner level, I felt a connection. I felt hmm. like there was something there— and, the, you know, we could go back and say, hey, that's wishful thinking. You were young. You were hopeful. All that's true. Except ultimately when he did accept me, I think I was feeling something that was accurate. And we didn't have a blood test at that point. And it was toward the end of the meeting. And I, I we hadn't even talked about while I was there. And I said, well, do I look like anyone on your side of the family? And he kind of looked at me a little nervous and said, no, but they've asked me to take a blood test and we'll do that. And if not, um, it's been nice to meet you anyway. And as cold as that sounded, there was some part of me that thought, all right, we'll wait for the blood test. We'll see what he does then. And I think ultimately he was coming from a place of fear. And when you're young and open-hearted and primed to love your parents, no matter what, I was coming from a place of kind of just unconditional puppy love. Ultimately... I think it's a good story of love beating fear.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I found myself and I think a lot, a lot of people reading this story or the people who lived through this story in real time uh, find myself getting uh, rather angry at him or yeah. uh, frustrated at his recalcitrance. But I, and, and I still am. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, it, it, it's an extraordinary situation. It's extraordinary enough. To be dealing with the arrival of this young woman, whose existence you probably knew of, but we're you know just we're trying to push as far back into into your ancient history as you can. Under any circumstances, that would be a complicated thing to be yeah. doing. So to be doing it while you're the governor. Um, now, I mean, now that you're a member of the press and you sort of a little bit you have a little bit more of a uh a triangular notion of what it's like to be the reporter, the subject the the other part of the story um, you can see maybe why he's thinking there's no good way for this to happen there's no way that this can happen that's just not going to be a circus for everybody
0: right, and it ultimately turned out to be a circus, but I think that circus was the gift because ultimately we did end up filing the paternity suit because he hadn't done anything he was sitting on the all the news of me and I couldn't hang on to this hope and hope that he might do something and then turn 18 and lose any chance which I thought as a father no matter what he owed some responsibility to me I wanted a relationship with him but it had been you know now a couple years of trying the nice way and I thought well okay the lawyer said we need to file something so we did and it ultimately my father went on the air first because Mm. he knew exactly Mm. that that was him and he said all right you know I guess the best defense is a good offense he went on the air and he said it 's highly likely, in the language of a blood test, that I have a daughter and mm. uh, and that set off the media firestorm and At first, he tried to deflect responsibility and say, well I, I took care of this mm. i I settled out of court, I gave her mother money, and I think ultimately anybody now, first of all that 's no longer legal. you can 't pay a lump sum mm-hmm. for a child, uh, thanks to my case and Isaiah Thomas and others it 's fortunately no longer possible. But I think also the public looked at him and said, what? You can't, you know, you have this daughter. You need, to get, you need to get to the point of acknowledgement. And I think he needed to take his own journey. Thankfully, it wasn't that much longer. At some point, it was a few days later, he turned around. He shocked his staff. He kind of shocked everybody and said, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay for her college education at the University of Michigan. Anything else, I'm not agreeing to. It'll just I'll treat her like the rest of my children. But here's a deal. I want her to come live with me. And he said, I want you to come live with me because how am I going to get to know you? I'm the governor of the state and you're going off to college. So if we're going to get to know each other, you better come move in with me. And I
1: did. Um, before that happened, you and your mother did have a press conference. Yes, we had a news conference. You yeah. had a news conference before the media where you, you told your story. Yep. And, and it, it's kind of interesting, too, the way in the book you kind of explore. By the way, we are talking to Kara Sunlin or Finding Dad. I should remind everybody of that. Um you and your mother have to, I mean, all through this book, you and your mother have to explore your own dynamics, too. Yeah. And, and you have to, um, each of you has a story to tell that is essentially the same story and yet also a different story. And there are ways in which your mother, even at that press conference, is probably angrier at your dad than you're willing to be, too. That's another needle you had to thread.
0: Yes, I think dealing with my mom. I mean, here's your mom who's done everything for you. She sacrificed everything, and walking that tightrope of not wanting to upset her, not wanting to make her feel like second fiddle, also respecting her feelings because you know now she's the subject of a national news story. So there's I'm coming home at night, and she's watching the news and crying, mm-hmm. and 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 all of the pain that she I'm sure had in the 1975 when I was born um, was being relived for her, mm-hmm. and she was understandably really angry. And I think, though, when you're a kid, you can't always take on all of your parents' pain and you have to take it on differently. So somehow it was almost too heavy for me. I had to respect her, but I also had this notion that I can't make her story my story. I have to give, I have to have something open here. I have to leave space because it was something I really wanted. I wanted him in my life. And I truly forgive that. I truly think that that's the lesson that I learned, that when he ultimately did offer his acceptance, I had to say, OK, I'm going to trust you and hope that you're for real. And then I also had to say, I'm going to practice forgiveness here. I'm not going to spend the next 18 years asking why you weren't here for the first 18, or we're not going to get anywhere. And we, I really made that decision of we're going to wipe the slate clean and start from ground zero, which wasn't as easy for my mom. And I had to constantly kind of walk on eggshells and, and, and help her with that part of it. Ultimately, you know, they did work. It took a lot longer, and I'm not sure that she ever can wipe this slate as clean as I can, but she's ultimately grateful that he came into my life. There's been times we've shared Thanksgiving dinner, all of us together. Mm-hmm. So it can be done.
1: Um, we should mention uh, that the book... Uh, finding Dad is is out now, although uh, we are actually recording this interview on November 6th, is that what I think it is right now? It'll be out November 11th. Uh, don't call in because we're not here in the studio while you're hearing this. Um, Kara Sunlin, um, one thing that I didn't mention, well, a couple of just sort of um, kind of almost demographic uh, matters here. Uh, he was quite a bit older than you. He was not the age that you you would expect your dad to be, right?
0: Right. Most people, I'm 39, so most people my age don't have a dad who fought in World War II. My father was was uh, he i met him in nineteen ninety two for the first time so he was seventy two and I was seventeen and my father was a very young 72. Um, He had lived quite a life. And he used to say the first third of your life, you learn the second third you earn and the third third you serve. So even though he became governor later, it was he seemed much younger. Um, But that was a big spread. And there was that was that first meeting wondering, well, what am I going to talk to him about? Here's a guy who's not one for small talk. And there's this huge age difference. And ultimately, what happened is I brought my baby book to that meeting, and he brought a bunch of photo albums, and he's showing me pictures of growing up and the war and what he's doing to fix the economy in Rhode Island, and I'm showing him you know my locks of hair and my little certificates from high school and um yet, on another level, we were very much alike, and I think that's why we got a, later you'll read we got along so well, and we understood each other. Um, there was this connection, and I think especially for him having a young daughter actually allowed him to soften up. Uh,
1: Another demographic difference is that um, he's Jewish, and uh, you were not really raised Jewish in any way, right?
0: Right. I was not, though my mother, I was uh, baptized Catholic um, and, and went to church. My mother had always told me, your biological father is Jewish, though. Like She would say things like, you're half Jewish. And when I was younger... None of that made sense to me, and I, I sometimes we get a little angry at my like, You look, you look, and act just like your father. She would say, "I'm like, no, I don't. I look like you," because <laughs> it was this man I'd never met before. Um, but uh, it, you know, interesting whether this has anything to do with it or not. I grew up in an area uh, in in Michigan that was very Jewish, and I had a lot of Jewish friends, and I was exposed to that um, of going to Rosh Hashanah dinner at my friend Brooke's house or whatever. So, um, interestingly enough, it wasn't a shock to It, it wasn't a shock to me. And there was a funny moment, actually, in our big news conference where one of the political reporters, like, you know, trying to get at that question. And my dad just took it by the horns. He goes, listen, excuse me, Kara, do you know I'm Jewish? I said, yes. He goes, okay, good. Next question. (laughs) So there was a – it's a different faith than what I grew up in, but um, I don't think it was ever an issue for me. All
1: right. You know what? Let's grab a break here. We're talking to Kara Sunland, the book's Finding Dad. It's the story of her repatriation, uh, and I guess that's the perfect word for it, (laughs) with with her father. Uh, We'll take a break. We'll come back after this. Talking to Kara Sunlin, uh, the book is Finding Dad. It's out right now. It's the story of her, her father, Bruce Sunlin, the governor of Rhode Island, uh, and many other things besides, as you'll hear as we go along here. We almost skipped past a couple of things, which is that to an unusual – I mean, you alluded to it uh, just at the end there. But um, to an unusual degree, this all had to unfold in a very public way so that when you and your mom uh, first decided to announce uh, the paternity suit, that was a press conference. When you and your dad decided you were going to make a go of it. That was a press conference. In other words, something that would have been difficult under any kind of circumstances was you know, was made even more complicated. I mean, who does that? Who who has to go in front of cameras and say, oh, by the way, this is my daughter. Hi, this is my dad. We're going to try to make a go of it. And that must have – I don't know whether it added to or subtracted to – subtracted from the pressure that you felt.
0: There was a surreal experience that on one hand we were performing mm. and that when we get through all those – hurdles of telling our private business of wanting to reconcile or or me wanting him in his life to the news, that ultimately we would, at some point, those cameras would go away. We'd have to start a real relationship. But I look at it and I, and I can't deny that that I found him on TV. I woke up in the middle of the night, found him on TV. Then we reconcile on TV. Then I go into TV. So I say in the book, the TV just seemed to act as a messenger in my life. So however that works, you know, everyone has their, their own meant to be moments. And for whatever reason, the The TV was um, something that's just been a constant, and I think um, it actually, because of all the media attention, probably was the birth announcement that my dad needed to then say, okay, I don't have to tell anyone anymore. They did that for me. Now I can just deal with this, because he was very good at dealing with things once there was a crisis and it was known. He was the guy who called to fix things. He was the guy who called to make things work or clean things up. But um, the whole bringing it out, I think, was a problem
1: for him. It's one thing to want something. It's another thing to get it. So you wanted uh, this man to be your father, to Mm -hmm. act like your father. You wanted his attention. You wanted to be in his life. Uh, One of the things that's clear in the book, though, is that then you have to do that. And you had a learning curve about how to be a governor's daughter. What were some of the complexities of that?
0: Well, I move in there, and I'm moving into his. Uh, you know, I came from um, living in just a you know nice suburb, but living in an apartment with my mom, um, and and not destitute, but certainly not living on a, in an estate on the cliff walk, which is where mm-hmm. my father lived and where he's governor of a state. So you know, just getting called down, like, are you? I'm running late as I'm jumping into a helicopter to go to some event with him because with,
1: with your hair unbrushed,
0: with mean, my hair unbrushed, and him noticing, mm-hmm. and uh, Black-tie galas and, and knowing how, just learning on the fly how to have to operate in mm. a very public setting. Um,
1: you get a speeding ticket. It's a very different deal.
0: I got a speeding ticket as I'm going to my job. They gave me an internship um, at WPR in Providence, which was a good thing, right? I got to go into TV. They gave it to me, I'm sure, because of um, I was known at that time. But I thought, hey, it's a chance to cut my teeth. And on the way there, I get a speeding ticket. And that becomes the news story mm. in the newspaper and on the other stations that I was caught speeding And to the extent that I I really realized, okay, people are judging me, Um, there was a report that I tried to get out of it saying I was the governor's daughter, which wasn't true. Mm -hmm. But somehow that got out there anyway, and I was trying to defend myself against that and learning really quickly that when you're in the public eye, things are different and the judgments are different. And that was hard. That was Mm -hmm. really hard, especially at the age of 17. I mean, in some respects, that certainly would have been easier for us to just – Uh, live a life with nobody watching. We had our own complexities, just getting to know my brothers and my stepfamily and all of that without the cameras watching every move.
1: You know, this book tells a whole uh, bunch of different stories about that process. Um, For you, was there a specific moment where, I mean, you and your father, yes, you had to do this in public. You had to do it in private. You had to sort of figure all this stuff out. Was there a specific moment where somehow or other he behaved in a way towards you where you thought, "Okay, this is real. He's finally being my real father right now.
0: I think it happened in moments, not in just a moment. But I definitely saw that. Um, And I, I picked out in that first summer, it was like cramming a whole childhood into one summer and remembering what it felt like when he decided to reach for my hand as we were marching in a parade. That would be a public instance. And he held my hand for a really long time. And just knowing that, I still remember that sensation, like, it's so strange. I'm holding his hand for a really long time. And loving that feeling, but also being aware, wow, I'm holding my dad's hand. And another time, we were just alone together, and we go get ice cream, and I realize he's orders the exact same ice cream I get, which isn't exactly common. I always wanted a chocolate soda with chocolate ice cream. My friends thought I was nuts. You know, like, what do you get your drinks from the happy days? And, uh, you know, the fact that we ordered that exact same food, or if we went to a restaurant nine times out of 10, we'd want the same food on the menu. And uh, those little moments of seeing myself in him, and I also think he saw himself reflected back in me. It was, it was those little moments. It was also, you know, him being there for my first job or later on, showing up for me when I started dating Dennis and and judging the men in my life, like who's this, who's that, you know, really taking an interest or showing up to Parents' Day weekend in college. All of a sudden the camera's gone and that's feeling a little bit more real. He's showing up. He's 20 years older than every other parent, but he's going to the football game and going over to the frat house for the Parents' Day breakfast and just doing what he needed to do to show me, okay, this is real. I'm your dad now.
1: You know, um, this uh, crops up. What you just said crops up in the book a lot. And even that, just the response that a lot of ha- people have that that, that use the you smile the same way, you look the same way, you, you speak the same way, and or have some uh, facial expressions that are similar. People start really noticing that. I wonder if you think you're very much like him. I mean, once again, reading the book, you know, I, I, all of us are on a little journey to try to get to know this guy. And he's a complicated guy. And he's got a complicated past. Uh, and at times... He seems a little brusque um his uh well actually, you can tell this story uh, it, uh I tell him <laughs> what he told dennis when dennis Dennis house <laughs> decided to ask. Uh, him for your hand, uh, his particular warning to Dennis is maybe not a, a typical one that, that, you know. Right, uh, People.
0: I'm going to tell the story and people are going to hear it and if you don't know him, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. And if you do know him, you'll be like, oh, that's totally something he would say because yeah. my father would often speak without a filter. He hmm. was very uh, brusque, as you said, and and would often say things that were uh, not politically correct. But um, as Dennis is there in secret, asking, telling him, I'm going to ask Kara to marry me. And I just want to let you know, my dad's all excited. And then he's like, oh, I've got some advice. I've got some advice. And Dennis is thinking, well, this will be good. Here's a man who's been married five times. He must know something. Mm. And he says, well, listen, women, they tend to gain weight when they get married. And Kara's short, so she's not going to carry it well. So you're going to really have to watch what she eats. I mean, as I'm saying this to you, I'm like, really, Dad? I mean, could yeah. you possibly say that? And Dennis said for a long time he wasn't sure if he would tell me that, if I would get angry. And when he did finally tell me, I laughed and, of course, teased my father about it. He was like, what? What? I was just, I mean, it's kind of true. And it sounds awful, but at the same time, he would just say these things that were um, that were just very— not politically correct, I should say. And I
1: think, think one of Dennis's other reactions was that he now understood why your father had been married four times.
0: Yes, exactly. That, that's true. Um, and you know, but other times he was there to just be like, "Wow, you did a really great job," mm-hmm. or um, you, you know, letting me know. Even though he was not this warm, cuddly, oozy, goozy kind of guy, he would show up and let me know he was proud of me. Whether he came to um, the Emmy Awards when I was up for my first Emmy, and I thought, "Okay, I'm never going to win." And then I, it was just very a uh, sweet night because I ended up winning my first Emmy on the time that I had brought him there, and he was just beaming with pride. And often, like I think many fathers of that generation say they don't, they don't necessarily tell you, they'll tell someone else. So mm-hmm. every time we're with a group or a fam- family or someone, "Hey, got to tell you about Kara. you hear about this news? She got an Emmy or I got to tell you about Kara? She's, uh, she's going to have a baby. I'm so excited." You know Or it was sometimes in those third-person moments that he was more comfortable showing me that he was proud.
1: Do you think you're you're like him in any way? I mean, you you, you, I mean, you look like him, you smile like him, you talk like him. Do you think as a person you're very much like him?
0: I do. Yeah. Um, I do. I think that my dad, I think that that was something I realized is that our ability sometimes in this journey, people say, how did you go through that all? How did you, you were so young. And, you know, my dad had a unique ability to sometimes act in a crisis and turn off his emotions. And it probably helped him be a pilot and all those other things. And I think I was wired a little bit like that. More so, my mom is extremely emotional and artistic and, my dad and I could operate in the same way where we could be in a really intense situation and then deal with the emotions later. I also think we had a lot of the same interests. I also think um we had similar sense of humors. So my mom was right. When she would say, Okay, you're a lot like your dad or you're a lot um you know, strong personalities or or a certain kind of strength. Um, I think that probably got I probably inherited that from him. My mom's strong in a different way, but my brothers will say, "Oh, you're more like him than any of us. You're you're the female version of him." And I actually take that as a compliment. Uh, I think it's. I, I, I but I think that's one of the reasons we ended up becoming so close. Is once we got past all of it, we were like a missing puzzle piece. So I say in the book, I, it was like finding the other half of me. I started to understand a lot more about myself when I met him.
1: Um, very few people who go in in journalism have been to the, quite the same degree, the object of journalism prior to going into journalism. Do you think that's sort of changed... or or not changed, but has it affected how you approach your mission? We all tend to be a little bit cold-blooded in this business and uh, sometimes just can't even really afford to take into account the feelings of the people that we report on. Having been that person first, does it it make a difference to you?
0: I do think so because it was really traumatic for my family to go through that and sometimes the reporters camping outside my house. And I remember um, Barbara Marr who's out of the business now, but she was at the ABC station in Providence, and I remember her just being so maternal and so nice, coming up to me with no cameras and saying, could I just have a baby picture of you, and as I was getting out of my car to try and make it in my house without having to talk to the press, and I remember thinking, this woman is so nice, and she's so considerate, and I went, and I gave her the baby picture, and I'm sure back at It's probably some exclusive story for her back home that she got. She was only with the baby picture, and um, but I remembered that human moment. And I think when I've had to work on really difficult situations, whether it be a scene where I've shown up with the death of a child or uh, uh, you know, even covering the events in Newtown, having that understanding that sometimes people are going to want to tell their story and they're going to need to tell their story. But you, they need to have a human connection. So I, I do think I'm always intent on trying to come from a little bit more of a place from my heart when I'm dealing with something difficult. Probably because I was on the other side of that.
1: You know, um, I wrote a memoir about my father. And I'm you wrote a memoir you about your father? It, yes. And so um, uh, one of the things that I was aware of when I wrote this memoir was that I had a certain public persona here in, in this market. And people knew me a certain way. And I was on WTIC at the time. I wasn't anywhere near as nice uh, as I, as you can certainly testify, as I am now that I'm on public radio. And, <laughs> and, and, and that I was going to lay bare. A lot of things that I just had never, I mean, you know, we just, you're in this business, you tell people what you want them to know, you hope they don't don't find out the other stuff, and and that, you know, you need this little wall around you so that you can sort of function. So, and you have the show, Better Connecticut, which is really, you know, a, a show for the most part about, Personal happiness about people, you know, having something really pleasant to watch in the afternoon and put their worries aside and and see all these nice things that they can do and go to and experience. And you and Scott uh, are generally, you know, happy as opposed to morose on the show. And suddenly uh, you're you're revealing all of this stuff. You're really laying a lot of yourself bare. How how does I mean, it, it hasn't really quite happened yet. I've read the book, but most people haven't had that opportunity yet. The story is relatively well known, but still, for the people who watch your show, they're about to know you in a different way. So how does that feel?
0: It was scary to do that. And I shied away sometimes of wanting to write, especially the early years and the difficult problems. And I thought about that. I'm like, gosh, do people even want to hear this? Exactly for the reasons you just said that Mm. I'm there to entertain and inform and inspire. But I think that when another person Um, tells their truth. And I ultimately had a lot of encouragement and support from people in my life like Susan Campbell, who was my writing teacher at the Mark Twain house when I took the Memoir writing class and decided I was going to do this, or like Mika Brzezinski, who uh, she encouraged me to write the book, and she certainly bared a lot about herself, having issues with eating and problems. You know, nobody expected Mika to have problems with food, and here she was getting diagnosed with um, an actual nervosa disorder mm-hmm. with with food, and and yet she still got to go to work the next day. In fact, people probably liked her more. And so I was scared to kind of reveal all that. But I also think that I would tell someone else that when someone else tells their truth or someone else tells their story, it's so freeing for the rest of us. And we all can, you know, I think we all heal. When you heal it for yourself, you heal it for someone else. And ultimately, I wrote the book with the intention of it's 20 years later. I can tell this story now from my vantage point. Back in the day, people went to make movies, write books. We shut all that down. I said I can tell it now and I can share this important lesson that I learned about forgiveness and healing. And all of us have these broken issues that no one wants to talk about in our families. But we went through that and we came out better for it. So when I wrote from that intention, it was a little more freeing. And then I remember my father also used to say, give him the facts, don't sugarcoat it. (laughs) And so I knew that he was okay with me. Um, I I was worried. I'm like, I don't want to tell the bad stuff because we ended up with such the good stuff. But Mm -hmm. you can't tell this story without starting off and, and telling the mistakes that people made early on. And I had to ultimately share that part.
1: Yeah, Your father is clearly one of those guys who has an on switch and an off switch and not much in between. It's like either none of the facts or all of the facts. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's grab a quick break here. We're talking to Kara Sunland, The book is uh, Finding Dad. It's out now. I'm sure there are 89 different book signing events, uh, one or two of which you may want to mention uh, when we come back. We'll take a little break right now and we will, in fact, be back.
0: I was my mother's channel. and I loved her. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Michael Dukakis, who I thought was my father until it turned out to be Deval Patrick. Long story. At least it wasn't John Rowland. For show pages, articles, and pictures of the Faith Middleton Show staff reuniting with their biological father, Rob Ford, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's
1: show, our salute to
0: psychopaths. And now, back to Colin.
1: I'm talking to Kara Sondland. You know her from WFSB, uh, and uh, she also is a contributor to the Huffington Post at times. uh, And she's the author of Finding Dad, From Love Child to Daughter, the story of her uh, patching things up uh, with her father, her biological father, Bruce Sondland, then the governor of Rhode Island. Uh, And the book's out now, and you're doing a signing at R.J. Julia when.
0: Uh, 1118, November 18th. It's at 7 p.m. You can go on R.J. Julia's website and register there. So I'll be there. And then after that, if uh, it's better for you to go in the Hartford area, I'll be at Barnes & Noble, Blueback Square. uh, And that'll be on December uh, 11th. December 11th. And anything else, I'll be kind of keeping people up to date on, on my Facebook page and all that as things come up.
1: All right. So um, there's so many other stories that are in this book. And uh, before we run out of time, there's one of them that I particularly want to get to. It's uh, more prominently featured at the end because while you were looking for your father and while you were um, uh, trying to uh, get back together with your father, uh, it turned out you were not the only one looking for this man. There was uh, somebody trying to tell a story from World War II uh, who was very interested in this guy. Uh, So I'll let you kind of take over and explain this. I mean, as if this didn't have enough hair raising uh, twists and turns to it, it turns out that your father's life had had even more hair-raising twists and turns, especially this story.
0: And I think that's why he turned out to be as tough as he was, because my father was a World War II bomber pilot. He was uh, a Jewish bomber pilot, uh, which obviously makes more complications when you're trying to flee from Nazis. He was shot down on his unlucky 13th mission over Belgium. He was the only one in his crew not to be killed or captured. And he was flying his plane, a B-17, called the Damn Yankee. And ultimately, he... Just a complete story of survival. He hid himself uh, in the dirt, remembering – he remembered Edgar Allan Poe's letter hiding in plain sight. And he just hid himself in the dirt in the field waiting for the Nazis to quit looking for him. And this was in the town of Yubika, Belgium. So years later, there's a man named Luke Paco. And as there is in most European cities, they have such respect that I learned – For Americans and for the fact that our soldiers fought for their freedom. So Luke Paco had been on a journey. He'd been going to that field for his whole life uh, since he was 12 years old, picking up pieces of the damn Yankee and wanting to know more about the story of the plane that crashed in his town. So Luke Paco is a metal worker. He's not a journalist. He's not this, but he's so – Obsessed is actually a good word for, the, for with this story and, and with the meaning to his town that he decides to go on this lifelong hunt for my father and write a book about it, write a book about the damn Yankee and all the crew members and how my father escaped. So while I'm looking for my father, Luke Paco also happens to see that my father has become governor by watching CNN News in Belgium. So it takes him a couple years of calling the state house, and them not thinking, oh, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And he finally gets my dad on the phone and he explains, I'm Luke Paco. I have pieces of your plane. We want to have a memorial uh, built in your honor and, and the honor of your crew members. We want you to come to Belgium. I'm writing a book. And my father says, oh, my gosh. Well, all right. if you're really writing a book about this, sure, I'll come back. And he does. And he meets Luke Paco, Luke Paco who has his entire garage filled with pieces of his plane and My father relives that part of his life where he became the fighter. I'm sure he was also born a fighter. But that moment of being shot down, of he ultimately, as a Jewish man, hides in Catholic churches. He steals bicycles and goes Catholic church to Catholic church to Catholic church to stay alive till he makes it to Switzerland, runs into Alan Dulles. You can't make this stuff up. Mm -hmm. Alan Dulles makes him a spy, Mm -hmm. and he joins the resistance. And so, you know, looking back, when I went, ultimately, I finished the book with um, trace, retracing my father's footsteps and I realized I, I'd i always heard those stories and he was very proud of uh, what his crew did during the war but I didn't understand until I actually walked in his footsteps why he became as tough as he did and that's probably where he stopped living from his heart and started just reacting to crises because death does that to a person and so I say in the book that ultimately walking in his shoes gave me then the lesson of compassion I certainly had forgiven him but I sort of had a better understanding of how he became the way he became.
1: There are um, uh, amazing stories about this. Wasn't there one pregnant woman who, on the one hand, said he was endangering her entire family, yes. but the other thing, she cleaned his wounds with a toothbrush or
0: something? Right, and, and, and her floor. After he got it all dirty, she was very angry that she he just messed up her floor that needed to be waxed, but ultimately cleaned his wounds with alcohol and a toothbrush. My father would say, I can still remember that pain. It hurt so bad he can still remember the pain, but he also thanked her. Um, because he said it never got infected. He never could go to the hospital because he had to stay on the run. And ultimately, this became a subject for a documentary film that's uh, airing in the Jewish Film Festival. in that will be March 15th coming up uh, in Hartford. And it's called Above and Beyond. And I actually got to meet the man at the gate who brought my father into that house. Mm -hmm. I got to meet a couple of the people who were around at that time and watched the plane crash. So uh, it was really a remarkable moment for me. And I'm so lucky that I got to do that because actually even since the year that we went back there, uh, one man has died and the other one is near death.
1: So um, uh, you've, well, I've actually there's sort of a moment in the book where you're there, you're visiting and on the visit that you describe and uh, this plane, I guess, really busted up in a lot of different pieces and and the man you're with says, hey, "Just look around and see if you find a piece. Well, right away you find a piece, right? Right yeah. away. So, and, and so this kind of, This is something that I didn't really know that much about you. I guess it's sort of um, something that you explore a bit uh, with some regularity uh, on Better Connecticut. But... um you know, you talked about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe you were meant uh, to to go into television or to find your father through television or something. Television seems to be this sort of constant cue that things happen for a reason. Uh, I, I'm assuming you would probably apply that maybe to just abruptly with very little effort finding a piece of that plane. Uh, there's a, a scene at the end of the book where your um, your father dies at the age of 91. You go back to work. The first thing that happens is light 91 and your studio goes out. Um, you do have a side the, the, when you say that things are meant to happen, yeah. that things happen for a reason. You're you're not engaging in a figure of speech, right? There's some part of you that really does turn to ideas uh, about well, about things on heaven and earth that are not drummed in our early earthly right. philosophies,
0: right? Uh, the things we don't report on as journalists, unless, except now, I do care as cures for mind, body, and spirit. So I guess I do, but. Um, the, the journey to find my father was actually a journey to find myself with a capital S, our true self. And I learned that there is that inner working. I mean, for me, I call it God. For other people, they might call it the universe. But I think every time I listened to that inner voice, I was getting the right answers. And it's what allowed me to hang in and ultimately uh, go through what I went through as a teenager and, 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 and keep hanging on even though things didn't look good from the outside. Mm-hmm. And then later on, as things were happening, I, I – I have become aware that um, when you let it, uh, I do think that the universe speaks to you and you can find what path you're meant to be on by getting quiet, by getting still. And that's been a long journey. I mean a lot of the reason they say you teach what you need to learn. What I do on Kara's Cures and Better Kinetic is I go interview people who teach meditation. I go interview gurus. I go interview this. And in my own experiences, I've had these um, transformations and learning that, okay, wow, there really is a bigger – all-knowing, stronger part of ourself. Ariana Huffington would call it the GPS of the soul. That's, uh, when I interviewed her, she talks about that too. And you know, theres I, I think it's comforting to me to know that that's there. I think it was also something I needed to learn, that it was always guiding me. And now, as an adult, I'm probably much more aware of it and enjoy kind of sharing that message that when we all go through our troubles, there is this part of ourselves that is always peaceful and calm and always has the right answer
1: um uh, it, it uh, I say things uh, like what you just said with some regularity that the universe uh, is is operating at some other level or trying to tell us something or but I don't really know what I mean when I say that it's it's, it's something that I do at some level believe that there's a little bit more order or a different kind of order in the universe than, than what's been made clear to us so far uh, I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a spiritual person I, I think you are a more spiritual person I, do you have a specific set of beliefs or are you seeking and, and finding Little bits and pieces here and there.
0: I'm always a seeker, absolutely a seeker, and I'm always fascinated. I read a lot of spiritual texts. I love to read, if anything, from Arianna Huffington's book Thrive, if you want to call that a spiritual text, which I would, even though she puts it in really mainstream, Mm -hmm. easy to understand um, guidelines, or something like a Caroline Mace or Deepak Chopra. I'm doing the. But it's been, it's not natural in that. I, I always am interested to interview the guru. I don't consider myself the guru. Mm. Um, I, I was baptized Catholic. Um, we still go to Catholic Church, St. Patrick, St. Anthony. My kids go there from time to time. I think having that spiritual base is important, um, was important for me. I think it's important for my kids. But I'm not so much of a definition person. I wouldn't call myself overly religious. I think connecting to my spirit is really important. But how we define that, how we call it, what it means, that's where I'm always seeking.
1: Um... Uh, let's sort of come a little bit to the end of our story because we're coming to the end of our time Um, so unfortunately you didn't meet your dad until he was or didn't really join together with your dad until he was about 72 73 right and then fortunately he was a very long lived man he did he did he lived to ninety-one. Ten years after you uh, first uh, joined together with him uh, he was there at your wedding although he was deathly sick that day too Yes. Um, maybe just in in a quick way maybe you can sort of tell that story it's one of the most joyous days of your life and Maybe of his too, but he really had to struggle through that day.
0: He did, and he, you know, there's where him being a fighter um, really helped because he had gone into the hospital with a stomach issue. There was a blockage in his intestine, and um, ultimately, um, that can be really dangerous if if too much backs up. And um, he had been in the hospital for three weeks. And he told the nurses and the doctors, like, you get me out of this hospital and I'll invite you all to the wedding. Mm. And he ultimately got out uh, just a day before my rehearsal dinner. He'd lost 30 pounds. Mm. But he showed up with his clothes hanging on him. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was it was terrifying for me to see him. And I could tell that he was still weak. But I could also see that he was fighting through it. And he got up there that night. And it, it was a really monumental night for my family, not just because I got married, but because also that night as he's... Uh, giving me my first dance. And then as fathers do, giving that father speech about all the things he's proud of. But then he ultimately says, and I can't take credit for any of that. Mm. I owe that all to her mother, Judy Fargo, who raised her alone. And that was really the first time he'd publicly acknowledged the sacrifice my mom made. So that was very important. You know, she couldn't help but cry and neither could I. And so it was a really special moment. And I think that Um, For me, I was terrified he wouldn't be there. I mean, as much as I wanted to marry Dennis and walk down the aisle, I was like, this is like when you grow up without a dad and all those moments that you're starved of. I knew that I wanted to have all the big moments left, like him walking me down the aisle or him being at the birth of my children, which he was. But I was terrified. Like, what if he doesn't show up for my wedding? And ultimately, he fought and he got there and he did it. And the minute after he gave me my dance and it was about nine o'clock and he's like, I just can't stay anymore. I got to go back home, which I totally understood because he'd only been out of the hospital for a couple of days.
1: Um, there's some rule. I guess it's sort of true in everybody's life and career. Maybe it's not even special for us. I always feel like there's some rule for those of us who are who, who work in the jobs that we work in that we're going to get the, the really bad call while we're trying to do one of these jobs. For me, in both cases, uh, I was on the air and suddenly somebody called the board and said, you've got to leave right now. Your, your father is dying. And then the next time, it was your mother was dying. And so I would just leave the show in the hands of Bruce Stevens or Jody and Rosio and go racing off. Um, it, 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 you sort of had a similar thing, right? You guys, you sort of got that call,
0: I got that call. I was terrified of getting that call, like you, and I can and I as I'm reading your book now and I can feel it like I can feel that angst that i my dad was especially as he got older, I'm like, oh my gosh, now we're ninety now we're ninety one mm-hmm. I mean what 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 point am I going to just get this call? And I got the call that he was really sick, and fortunately for me, it was not an overnight thing. I got to be with him in the last three weeks of his life. I really didn't believe he was going to die. none of us did. We're like, this man is too strong, he says he's living to a hundred, he's living to a hundred. But that wasn't the case. But I was fortunate that the folks at Channel 3 let me keep running out of the studio to mm-hmm. go do these things. And ultimately, um, when it became clear that he wasn't going to make it out of the hospital, he had been begging me, Get me home, get me home. I don't want to be here. And um, we did that. And we got him home. And he was only home for another few hours before he died. But he died in my arms mm-hmm. with Dennis there, with uh, one of my brothers there, my other brothers calling in to say goodbye. Um, and family, his you know, his wife was there, my stepbrothers and sisters. So it was this incredible moment. I'd never had someone die in my arms before. And I was so upset. I was mourning. At the same time, I was so grateful. I'm like, I get to d- have this moment with him. I get to help him end his life. I'm not going to get that call and wonder what happened. Like, we're going to do this together. And Speaking from the spiritual note, as he did that, he left this earth with as much gusto as he came in. I mean, the picture fell off the wall, the door blew open, and we're all like, if we weren't here, we wouldn't believe this. But we're like, okay, I guess they came and got him. I mean, it was just an incredible moment that I'll never forget.
1: Uh, well, Kara Sunlin, uh, that's the place that we're going to end. I think it's uh, about as good a place as possible. Do not imagine if you've listened to this whole interview that you've heard the whole story. There's a lot more in this book, Finding Dad from Love Child to Daughter by Kara Sunlin from WFSB. Thanks for coming up from Rocky Hill today. Thank you, Con. Thanks for having me.